2 Timothy 2, verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Humanius and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles, not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I'd like to take just a moment to say thank you to a great number of you who have been in touch with me by various ways, inviting me to enjoy all kinds of encounters with you. And <coughs> I genuinely appreciate every one of them, and I apologize in advance for not actually being able to respond to everyone who has greeted me. But I owe an apology to some friends from Bradford who had apparently, uh, on account of uh, those who look after me at home, I've uh, been looking forward to a meeting with me yesterday following this study. I had already lost five pounds at the end of the study and went to look for them in the afternoon and forgot all about it, so I apologize. But to you, this is what I'll do. When I finish here, I will go and stand outside the entry to the pencil factory, and if you come and tell me uh, who you are, um, then we'll, I'll, we'll have a chat. Uh, the same is true for Dawn, with whom I studied, and uh, also uh, for Rick Hillard. Um, and, and if I'm not successful in that, then I'll try and come half an hour before the uh, Cumbrian uh, Minister's event, which is this afternoon over there, I believe at half past two, 
And so I, I will be around uh, all being well for that half hour. You have to forgive me, really, because uh, time is rolling on, uh, like it was rolling on for Paul. Paul's life in ministry, as we have been discovering, is coming to an end. And the real question, of course, as uh, life chases us down and we face our demise, is what is to become of our life's work? What is to become of all the work that, under God, uh, Paul has been able to do? It would certainly not be to his credit if in light of his departure, things were to begin to crumble and to collapse. And in many ways, what he is laying out for us here in 2 Timothy is his succession plan. Um, It is a very strange experience for me now to be meeting people, and instead of them asking me, how is it going, they're asking me, when are you stopping? They want to know. (laughs) Apparently, there's some great interest in me stopping, and... um, and so there it is. And, and I tell them, well, I, I have no immediate plans to do that. Uh, but it doesn't seem very long since, as I said on Monday, I was given the quote from Second Timothy and from this very passage here in the 15th verse. Then I was a 15-year-old boy. Now I'm a 70-year-old man. Now uh, I, like many of you, have more behind me than I have in front of me. And the question of uh, what you're doing and what it will mean and how it will matter, will eventually, I suppose, be the occasion of conversation for at least for a few people as they walk past and look on the tombstone, whatever is written there. And um, I'm quite a fan of tombstones, actually. I'm I'm a fan of uh, uh, graveyards as well. Not that I'm particularly keen to go in one, but I like to look at them. And I'm always intrigued by the uh, epitaphs. Epitaphs like this. Interred beneath this kirkyard stain lies stingy Jimmy Wyatt, who died one morning just at 10 and saved a dinner by it. So, so. Well, that wasn't going to be put on Paul's uh, tombstone for sure. And what becomes apparent to us is like any good leader, he understood the necessity of delegation. It will be very clear, at least by the time we come to the end of chapter 4, that Paul was not a one-man band. Uh, He was surrounded by people upon whom he relied, relying upon their prayers, relying on their observances, their encouragement, and their insights. And so he is here essentially delegating to his young lieutenant, as if you like a retiring general, the task that is before him. And he recognizes as every good leader must recognize, that all delegation involves risk. And it is now for Paul to hand over to Timothy. And he knows certain things about Timothy. He knows that Timothy is young, but he also recognizes his potential. In fact, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says of Timothy, Timothy is doing the work of the Lord, which of course was just what Paul was concerned that he would continue to do. He was at the same time well aware of Timothy's giftedness. Again, writing in the Philippians, he says, I have no one like him who will take an interest in your welfare. He has proved himself as a son with a father serving me in the gospel. Every one of us has occasion to be thankful 
for those who took a risk on us, whether it was as a nurse in a hospital, in a lab, in business, in teaching, whatever it might be. And in my case, at Charlotte Chapel, when Derek Prime, who was my boss and my mentor, took a risk on me. I'd love to be able to tell you all about it. It really was a huge risk. I had long hair. I looked like the front of a James Taylor album. I had a dreadful brown suit, and I don't like brown, and I don't think he did either. But nevertheless, uh, he took a huge risk on me. And some of you have already asked, why did you go back to your old outfit? And I said, well, it will be explained, because the tie that I'm wearing is very special to me. It is Derek Prime's college tie from Cambridge University. He left it for me in an envelope with a note on it to one of his sons to be given to me. It said, give it to Alistair. He has one like this, but the stripes go in the wrong direction. (laughs) So here, here we are. Yes, here we are. Paul is not leaving Timothy to his own devices, but he, as you will see from the text, providing him with very careful instructions. If you like, he is giving to him a job description. He is to remember Paul's instruction up in the earlier part of the chapter, verse 2, that he would entrust to reliable men the things that he himself had been reading and learning. And now it would seem to me that here in verse 14, when he says, remind them of these things, well, surely he has in mind uh, those under Timothy's tutelage in the congregation, but I think expressly in the context the them are the, these faithful ones who would teach others also. He wants to make sure that these men that he is referencing earlier in the chapter are engaged in the work of the gospel as per Timothy's uh, evidence and uh, excellence and example. Essentially, he is arranging, as he writes this final letter, for the preservation of the gospel. And in the first half of the chapter, we noted the picture of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. And now he provides three more. And our thanks to John Stott for this insight, because he says there are actually six metaphors here. And uh, we're grateful that he pointed that out. And the three that we now consider are first of all the worker, and then secondly the vessel, and then thirdly the servant. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, a worker. It's a very specific word there. It gives us our Greek word ergophobia, which is uh, the uh, dislike or the fear of doing work. Uh, I think my father, when he asked me to help clean the car, thought I was suffering from an extreme form of ergophobia. And uh, I think uh, there are some in pastoral ministry who are doing a pretty good example of it as well. And uh, we need to warn each other about that. It's an amazing place to be able to hide if you're not careful. You can hide. You mustn't hide. And don't kid yourself that because you're sitting in Starbucks with a laptop that you're in the public domain. Be very, very careful. Gilbert Kirby, who was the principal at LBC when I was there, gave us our practical theology classes, and I never forget him saying very directly to us, make sure when you get up in the morning you get properly dressed. Put your shoes on. Members of your congregation, 
do not go to work in their slippers. Now, of course, that was 1974. He would have to change that a little bit now as a significant part of the population is presently at work in their slippers. But uh, Paul knows nothing of that here. And again, he doesn't urge upon Timothy anything that he himself is not doing. I found it very important, again, in preparation for today, to go back and read great chunks of his first letter as well, as well as reading on into Titus. Because he says this uh, with great forcefulness. He says, you know, we are toiling, we're working to the point of weariness, we are striving, or we are struggling, or we are exerting ourselves in order that this great gospel that has been entrusted to us may be seen securely into the hands of coming generations. And I don't think we should try and step back from this at all. Um, People talk all the time now about uh, the great danger of burning out. And of course, that is a real danger for some. Uh, I think my wife wishes it was something of a danger for me. I, I think I could rust out quicker than I could burn out. And so I want to heed these warnings myself. Spurgeon to his students, if any man will preach as he should preach, his work will take more out of him than any other labor under heaven. Well, that may be hyperbole, but it is taxing. I hope you're praying for your pastor during the week as he prepares on the occasion when he preaches and afterwards when he feels so disappointed, still preaching and yet you still encouraging him. Do your best, it says, Verse 15, or be diligent, or concentrate, or focus on these things. Focus on what? Focus on God's approval. Present yourself to God. The idea of offering up yourself. Will I do? May I serve you? You know who I am. I don't have much, but present yourself. That was Eliot in his diary, wasn't it, all these many years ago before his martyrdom in front of the Alca Indians down in Ecuador. He said that he was studying surely for a degree at Wheaton, but he wrote in his diary that he was studying for the AUG. He was studying to be approved unto God. It's a very straightforward thing. It's a really uh, simple thought, isn't it? But it is a beautiful thought not just in pastoral ministry, but in the ministry of life itself. I wonder, do you uh, go about your day, whatever it is, making the the breakfast before uh, school day begins, or um, engaged in the routine events of life, or heading for the train, or whatever it might be? I wonder, have you started to do, as I often do, bring myself in check uh, by singing a hymn, at least under my breath? saying to myself, now I don't really want to do this, but forth in thy name, O Lord, I go, my daily labors to pursue. Thee, only thee resolve to know in all I think or speak or do. This is the song of a mom dealing with those two-year-olds and a dog that barks all the time and annoys the neighbors. This is the song to be sung by the school teacher looking out on this mass of humanity that doesn't care apparently one thing about irregular verbs or even regular verbs for that matter. (laughs) Wesley goes on, he wrote it in the 18th century, thee may I set at my right hand, whose eyes my inmost substance see and labor on at thy command. 
and offer all my works to thee. Every one of us. There's a work for Jesus. None but you can do. My role as a pastor and a teacher is to edify you, the saints, so that you might do the works of ministry. Every one of us making 215 part of our pilgrimage, presenting ourselves to God. Now, the reason that Timothy would have received this, as I'm sure he did, was because, again, the example of Paul undergirded his exhortation. Paul had taken this very, very seriously. He was concerned that he would know the commendation of God, and he's concerned that Timothy will feel in the exact same way. For example, and let me just read one cross-reference. When Paul is introducing himself to the Corinthians, he says to them, now, if you want to know how you should view as a servants of Christ and of stewards of the mysteries of God, this is how you should regard us. It's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I'm not thereby innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. At the end of the day, each one will receive his commendation from God. From God. It's his eyes who see our inmost substance. They know, he knows not only what we do, but why we do it, what our motivation is. It is impossible for us to hide from him, which is both chilling and at the same time wonderful. That he knows when we sit down and when we stand up, and he knows the words of our mouths before we even speak them. No wonder the psalmist says, such knowledge is high. I cannot attain to it. I can't unravel that. But you've got a whole universe to care for. And you know me sitting somewhere in this tent this morning? Yes, and more than that, loving you and caring for you. So, Timothy, what is it as a workman that you're working on? What are you to be doing? Well, you're to be rightly handling the word of truth, teaching the Bible, if you like, by teaching the Bible. You say, well, that's very straightforward, isn't it? Yes, but we have to acknowledge that some have stopped teaching the Bible. It's not uncommon for me to receive a letter of someone who's moved to another part of the United States saying that they've spent significant Sundays going place to place to place simply looking for a church that will actually begin with the Scriptures and with the invitation, come, let us worship God. How could it possibly be that those who are engaged, quotes, in ministry should miss such a basic essential of understanding that our task is to say to people, come, let us worship God, and then to teach the Bible by teaching the Bible. It was Augustine who said, you know, if you only teach the parts of the Bible that you actually believe, and you don't teach the parts of the Bible that you don't like or you don't believe, then, said Augustine, it is not the Bible you believe, it's yourself. And as soon as you find somebody introducing the Scriptures, watch carefully for this. Watch for the pronouns or the prepositions. I can never remember. When you hear somebody standing up and he says, we're going to read now from 2 Timothy chapter 2, let us listen for the word of God. 
That's your first indication. You might want to move to the edge of the pew and get ready for a quick exit. We're not listening for it. We're listening to it. And that is exactly what Timothy is to understand. And he says to him, I want you to make sure that you cut a straight line, that you plow a straight furrow, that you exercise a faithful teaching ministry. And that faithful teaching ministry, he says, will inevitably involve, verse 14, reminding them, reminding them, reminding other teachers that when they get into a teaching ministry, they need to be charged charge them before God. In other words, sit down with the folk that you're passing the baton to and say, I charge you in the name of God, do not do this. Do not do what? Well, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, to fight wordy battles. Because he says that kind of quarreling does no good. It only ruins the hearers. In fact, the word in Greek is, it is a catastrophe, giving us our English. Paul was very clear that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so these men are not to engage in futile quarrels, splitting hairs, spoiling relationships. Now again, this is not something that has just popped up at the end of Paul's life. It has been an emphasis throughout. He had earlier charged him in in his first letter to remain at Ephesus and charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. So the bottom line is straightforward, isn't it? As a good and a faithful worker, Timothy must tell the truth and avoid irreverent babble. The fact that Paul has so much to say about it suggests that this virus was clearly attacking the church community in Ephesus. And of course, as we have learned a little about viruses and various people's views on virus, uh, we know how important it is that it would be dealt with properly. He has to make sure that he is not drawn into vain discussions with upstart teachers. Again, I'm quoting 1 Timothy. He says, these people have got a lot to say for themselves, but they don't understand what they're saying, but it has never stopped them from saying it. I suggest that you don't spend time at the local um, minister's fraternal uh, getting engaged in warfare with with these folks. It leads to ungodliness. It's as dangerous, you will notice, he says, as dangerous as sepsis, as dangerous as a blood disorder, blood poisoning that would spread like gangrene. What a, what a vivid, vivid picture. You say, well, of course, these are particularly trying days in Ephesus. Well, they're fairly trying days now. And in 1984, Jim Packer, bemoaning a disinterest amongst the Anglican community in the substance of the 39 articles, he commented on the consequent confusion and uncertainty which was beginning to take hold within the evangelical Anglican community. I think he was, I think he was prophetic. He said, here we have Protestant teachers relativizing the absolutes of the revealed gospel, apparently to make possible hopes of salvation for all the post, non, and anti-Christian community. Well, he's been gone into glory. But he understood it then, and I think we understand it now. And here you have these two characters, the poster people, uh, for this dreadful virus. And so Paul says to him, I think you're going to have to practice some social distancing. 
You're not suggesting you have to stand on those little circles in the post office. But nevertheless, here we are, two characters. Timothy was cutting a straight path, and they were swerving from the path. That's verse 18. They have swerved from the truth. They're not swerving to avoid error. They are swerving into error. And at the heart of it, the notion that somehow or another the resurrection on the last day when Jesus will appear has already happened, and therefore it will not be happening. So what were they denying? Well, they were denying the bodily resurrection that is yet to come. And of course, Paul could never tolerate this. He had met the resurrected Jesus. He was assured of this. He had written his phenomenal chapter 15 uh, to the Corinthians, uh, urging them at the end, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, inasmuch as you know that your labor, your work in the Lord is not in, in vain. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. He is the ascended King. He is the coming one. Fantastic stuff. And so for Paul, denial of the future bodily resurrection was the denial of the faith itself. Jensen, another of my Anglican uh, friends, says the tactics of false teachers are unchanged. They profess belief in the resurrection and then quarrel over the meaning of the word in order to to deny its truth. For them, it was simply a spiritual experience in the past and nothing more. And they were upsetting the faith of some. I think perhaps you're aware, as I'm aware, that there are church communities within the orb of my life and ministry where many, many good people sit under a ministry where the words, the correct words are used, but from the lips of one who does not believe what the words actually convey. Blind guides leading others further in their blindness. That's the first, a worker. And so he says to him, I want you to just steady on, Timothy. Steady on. Because God's firm foundation stands. Uh, Satan will not have the last word. There is a double inscription on the foundation of the building, as it were. It says two things. The Lord knows them that are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord must depart from iniquity. For homework, read Numbers chapter 16, which contains the record of Korah's rebellion and the incident from which these uh, exhortations and inscriptions come. God sees the heart. He knows them that are his. We can see the life. God is sovereign. We are responsible. The logic of God's electing grace does not go like this. I have been chosen for salvation so I can live any way I please. But rather, I have been chosen for salvation and therefore I will live in any way that pleases God. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now that leads very straightforwardly, doesn't it, into vessel. I spend less time, I think, on vessel. I spend too long on the first. But verses 20 to 22, there we have it. Now, in a great house are not only vessels of gold and silver, 
but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, in all of these uh, writings to Timothy, both his first and again in his second letter, he's writing to Timothy, he says, so that he might know how to behave or how to conduct himself in the household of God. You're a servant in the household of God, like, like Samuel way back in all those days. When, Here am I, Lord. Here am I, Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's what you're doing, Timothy. You're going into your study. You're getting down on your knees and you're saying, speak so that I may speak. Oh, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of thy tone. Now, let you be in no doubt, Timothy, that there's a direct correlation between holiness and usefulness. I think it was McShane who said that the congregation's great need in their minister, their vicar, their pastor, their rector, the congregation's great need in that individual is not their giftedness, but their godliness. And so the challenge rings through this, doesn't it? In a great house, the great house is the household of God. It is, if you like, a picture of the visible church. The illustration is straightforward. Every man understands this illustration. When having done the dishes, his, 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 uh, on that rare occasion, having done the dishes, when he says, when his wife says, where did you put the such and such? And you said, oh, I, I actually threw that away. I, I, I thought it was dishonorable. Oh, no, no, no. That was the one that Mrs. Jenkins gave us when she was here just for the weekend. Oh, I'm dreadfully sorry. And so you need to be very clear, at least when you're doing the dishes, about what is honorable and what is dishonorable. The gold and the silver and the crystal are for honorable. You do not use mint and china to feed the cat. It's a straightforward picture, isn't it? I mean, anybody that misses this needs to, have a, needs to walk outside for a little while and cool off. Now, we need to understand the text in the context. What is the context? The context is about being a good teacher who sticks with the truth and not a bad teacher who swerves from the truth. So I take it that that is the picture that is still in mind. Two sets of vessels understood as referring in this context to those who are truly teaching and those who are falsely teaching. So the picture is between good workers, a worker, and bad workers, authenticity versus hypocrisy, the verity that attaches to Timothy's life and ongoing ministry versus the bogus activities of Hymenaeus and Philetus. It's a different metaphor, but the contrast is exactly the same. Faithful teachers will be honorable vessels used by the master of the house. But the privilege is enjoyed by those who fulfill the condition. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. Now, is he suggesting here that they should cut off all contact, for example, with Hymenaeus and uh, Miletus? Because after all, by lip and apparently by life, they are denying the basic gospel. 
Well, I don't actually think necessarily that's what he wants him to do. Although, in, at the beginning of his, his first letter, he, he addresses those characters as well. He says of them, they hold, hold, I want you to hold faith in a good conscience because by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So there was a trilogy whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, I don't think necessarily that they wouldn't be able to have coffee together or have a conversation. They're certainly not supposed to quarrel with each other when they do. But what is he calling him to do? Well, I think he's calling Timothy to purify himself from their error and from their evil. Again, the context, I want you to make sure that you cut the Bible straight, that you plow a straight furrow, that you do not swear from the truth. So I'm saying to you, be very, very careful with these characters that in spending time with them, if you do, that you do not imbibe their nonsense, that you do not allow yourself to be destabilized by the things that they want to say. Purge yourself from their falsehoods. Purge your mind of the things that they perhaps want to urge upon you. And essentially, purge yourself from the wickedness that will so easily flow from your mind to your heart if you're not careful. It works, you know, in both contexts, doesn't it? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And sometimes we have to wait for our hearts to catch up to our heads. We're not feeling it yet, but we're believing it. Lord, close the gap between my head and my heart. When it goes the other way, we become what we think. Garbage in, garbage out. Turn away from iniquity and flee evil passions, evil passions. Pay, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. This is so straightforward that we might be tempted to miss it. Here is the indispensable condition of usefulness to Christ. God chooses to use clean vessels, instruments of righteousness. Some of you are medics here, some of you are surgeons. You understand that. You don't just take hold of any old scalpel that was used in the previous surgery. And God has chosen not to just lay hold of anybody or anything at any time. That some have crawled up into pulpits of their own volition is a separate matter altogether. But in terms of God revealing himself and sustaining the ministry of those whom he has called, he chooses to use those who are, as described here, set apart as holy, set apart as holy, useful to the master and ready, holy, useful, ready. Well, what's involved in the cleansing process? I think it is again very straightforward. It's all about what you run from and what you run to. My father used to say to me, if you go over the crows, you're sure to be shot. It was a simple picture, but I understood. It wasn't a very nice way to talk about some of my friends at Oakley Grammar School, but nevertheless, I got the picture. Now, the company that we keep is so vitally important, isn't it? There are people in whose company it's easy to be good. There are people in whose company it's easy to be bad. There are people in whose company they move you on towards Jesus, and there are other people who take the air out of your balloon and make you wonder at all what you're doing. So choose your friends wisely. That's at least part of it. And he was about 40, I would imagine. Just a young fellow. 
flee youthful passions. What do you mean? Stuff like what? Well, power, pleasure, possessions, sexual lust, ambition, impatience, harshness, arrogance. Do you want me to continue? Now, it covers such a wide range, doesn't it? It basically, what he's saying is, your internal mechanism as a sinner, as a saved sinner, will increasingly turn in upon itself. You will be constantly wanting to see how well you're doing, how well you fit within the framework. In the contemporary world, if you happen to have invaded the territory of social media, you may then be invaded by the thought, I wonder if anybody cares, if anyone likes me, I wonder if they are still my friend, and so on. I would say flee from that immediately. You don't really want to know what everybody thinks about you. I, I can't remember who it was, said something like Francis of Assisi, you know, said, he didn't, but I'm just using him. He said, you know, if, if everyone knew what everyone said about them, there wouldn't be two friends in the whole world. So we don't really want to delve too deeply into that. This is a personal matter. Flee it. Well, what should I chase after? What should I run towards? Well, there you have it. Righteousness. Right living. This is the man to whom I will look, says the Lord. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word that runs at the approach of sin, that does a Joseph with the attractive wife of Potiphar rather than a David with the attractive girl on the roof. Faith, love, peace, steadfastness, gentleness, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And you will notice what it says. He will be. He will be. That's a promise. Well, then we must take God at his word. McShane encouraged a student by reminding him that he might be a chosen vessel Said McShane to the student, it is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Spurgeon similarly, let a man once become really holy, even though he has but the slenderest possible ability, and he will be a fitter instrument in God's hand than the man of gigantic accomplishments who is not obedient to the divine call or clean and pure in the sight of the Lord God Almighty who searches the hidden crevices of our lives. Well, what does it do to you? I tell you what it does to me. It makes me get in the car and sing from the old CSSM chorus book, cleanse me from my sin, Lord. Put your power within, Lord. Take me as I am, Lord, and make me all your own. And keep me every day, Lord, in the narrow way, Lord. And make my heart your palace, and your royal throne. And God says, yeah, that's the way we're going to do this. Finally, uh, a worker, a vessel, and a servant, which really underpins all the foregoing, doesn't it? Beginning in verse 23, I've already reached into that. Flee these youthful passions. The pursuit of peace and foolish controversy are incompatible. And that is why, again, you see, this recurring emphasis that it comes back to this, that Paul is actually almost guilty of repeating himself, isn't he? 
You mustn't do that when you preach. You can't come back around and keep saying the same thing again and again, unless you absolutely need to. Again, he comes back to it. I have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And you're the Lord's servant. And so you're not in the quarreling group. You're in the kind to everyone group. The able to teach department. What a challenge this is. In other words, the servanthood of Timothy is going to be seen or going to be heard better in what he doesn't say in some dimension rather than what he says. What he says is in the realm of the proclamation of the gospel, but he distances himself from other these things. There is, depending on your personality, there's a peculiar temptation that, it, that abounds now uh, via the internet to dip your nose into activities that you really should spend no time on at all. What is this person saying? What are that saying? What is the latest quarrel? What is happening over here? Who's leaving over there? How many people are over there? And so it goes on. A dreadful waste of emotional energy. And I would argue largely unproductive. Keep your head down and keep moving in the direction of the call of God upon your life. Have nothing to do with this silly stuff. However, he does not say have nothing to do with controversy. That is what some people do with this text. They say, oh, well, you shouldn't even be mentioning that. Why would you even point that out? That is controversial. Well, we are to argue for the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, when comprehensively proclaimed, is in and of itself controversial. The Christian fights the fight of faith. Many years ago, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, I think it was Colgan, was on a talk show in America. On the talk show along with him was Jane Fonda, the actress. At one point in the conversation, the Archbishop says, Jane, you know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. To which she replies, he may be the son of God for you, but he is not the son of God for me. To which Colgan replies, Jane, either he is or he isn't. Now that kind of clarity needs to be laid hold on and graciously but firmly proclaimed in Ephesus and in Eaglesome. You say, have you got a thing about Eaglesome? No, I just, it just was another E that came to mind. <laughs> it could have been Evesham. It could have been Echo Fecken for that matter. <laughs> well, I don't think I need to reiterate this. It comes so clearly, doesn't it? Steer clear of all this foolish, ignorant, speculative stuff. Make sure that you're not taking on baseless arguments. It's not, he says, that such um, quarrelsome speculation is unproductive. No, it is counterproductive. So that when speculation takes the place of revelation, then the result is a subjectivism, which means that everybody argues only on the basis of their own opinion. And leadership is crucial in this, as in every other respect. Paul, when he writes to Titus, does the same thing, urging him to make sure that the people under his care will be, listen to this, what's the congregation to be like there uh, under your tutelage, Titus? Well, this is what they need to be, says Paul to him. They need to be ready for every good work. They need to speak evil of no one. They need to avoid quarreling. They need to be gentle. 
and they need to show proper courtesy towards all people. And he, as a pastor, and Timothy, along with him, must face the challenge that this brings. And that's why he encourages him so carefully. Endure evil, correct your opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. You never know. Don't, don't, don't be done with them. Don't, don't just say, oh, well, that's, let, that they made their bed. Let them lie in it. No, now, deal with them. Speak to them, correct them with gentleness. God may grant them repentance, reading them to a knowledge of the truth. All of a sudden, their pulpit comes alive in the town, and the gospel is being proclaimed. Nobody really knows why, but it was because you were gentle, you were kind. You didn't deviate from course. You didn't capitulate. You didn't go to the lowest common denominator, but you stayed with it. And your friend knew that you stayed with it, but he also knew that you loved him. That was Lloyd-Jones. He used to say, love them to win them. He was talking about other ministers. And I think in his private life, he was a testimony to that very position. Charles Simeon was hugely influential in his day. He was a minister for 54 years. John Thornton, who was a member of his congregation and a wealthy benefactor, performed in some ways the role of Onesiphorus in Simeon's life. And on one occasion, his note to him read as follows. Watch continually over your own spirit and do all in love. We must grow downward in humility to soar heavenward. I should recommend your having a watchful eye over yourself, for generally speaking, as is the minister, so are the people." No surprise that James says, let not, many, let not many of you become teachers, for he who teaches will be judged with greater strictness. Now, let me just go through this again, especially I know I have colleagues in the ministry here, other pastors. We're not to be quarrelsome, kind to everyone. Really? Everyone? Able to teach. Instruction to say what is, and to say carefully and clearly and kindly what isn't. Bearing evil and opposition without resentment. Correcting our opponents with gentleness. With a demeanor that is the opposite of haughty, brash, and rude. Timothy is to conduct, if you like, a gentle ministry. It's really quite hard for me to uh, address this because I'm running out of time to get this right. Years ago, you could say, well, Lord, give me a few more years and I'm going to try and be better next Sunday when that same lady comes with that same question. I'm going to try, I'm trying the gentle thing next Sunday, but I'm running out of Sundays. Start, this will be my only quote, In every Christian evangelistic and teaching ministry, a spiritual battle is being fought out. The devil has his men and women trapped, and only God can deliver them. Yet he effects the rescue through the human ministry of his servants, the one who avoids quarreling and teaches with kindness, forbearance, and gentleness. Now, if you're like me, you say, well, where can we find such a teacher? Is there anybody... Anybody who fulfills 
this identical picture? And of course, the answer is, the only one who really ever knew how to preach is Jesus. I'm not sure anyone knows how to preach except Jesus. He is the servant. Behold, my servant. You can read it there in Isaiah. Our time is gone. The servant is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the servant par excellence. It's fascinating, isn't it, that the only time he makes really any mention of himself, his characteristics, or who and what he is, what does he say? That's right. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You see, all those snotty Pharisees had nothing to say to Zacchaeus. He he sat at a table by himself at the golf club, metaphorically. But Jesus came to town and brought him down the tree and everything was changed. It was that gentleness, that straightforwardness, that unerring plowing the straight furrowness of Jesus when he sat with a woman at the well that didn't begin with, hey, I hear you've made a royal mess of your life. The, the, the word in the town is that you've had five husbands and you're living with a guy. No, he simply said, it would be okay if I had a drink of water, please. Wow. What a challenge. It's no wonder that the chapter begins. Remember how it begins to Timothy? Well, look, you'll see. (laughs) You, my son, you, my son, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is an impossible task. Absent the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which has been granted to us, in the gracious provision of God, whatever our area of ministry. Brief prayer. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all we ask is to be like him. Throughout life's journey, from earth to glory, All we ask is to be like him. Help us, gracious God, since you have chosen us in order that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, because we are being transformed into his likeness, a wee bit slower than we were hoping. But nevertheless, uh, the solid inscription stands firm. And we know that one day when we see him, we shall be like him. So help us to help others as we run this race together. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.